All right. Uh, listen, I'm really excited today. Welcome to Blackballed. My name is James DeFiore. Uh, we have a guest now that is unlike unlike anyone I've ever met. And I had the, the fortunate happenstance to sort of meet him in the online realm a bunch of years ago and then interviewed him um, a couple of years after that. That must have been like 10 years ago now or something. And... Um, He's one of those guys, I, I actually consider him a friend. I consider him almost like a family member because of the vibe that he has and the way that he carries himself. He's hip hop's biographer and official photographer. It, there, there is no second place in this as far as I'm concerned. And I'm gonna get hate mail from Joe um, probably soon. And um, I would like to introduce uh, the renowned Ernie Panicoli. Ernie, what's up buddy, how are you? How you doing, brother? Thank you for having me. I'm grateful. He's it's been like twelve years since we've since we first met. How is that even possible? I believe I, I got to Toronto the first time in two thousand nine and I was working with Manifesto, so yeah. you have to take it from there. And uh, yeah, it's been a while. Um the world has changed, everything has changed, and everything has stayed the same, so it's interesting. You have um, this unique sort of perspective in in the fact that like, hip hop as like a North American culture, as we know it, um, has has only existed for what is it now? Forty eight years or so, roughly, depending on on what math you want to use from the early 70s. And you have been like this constant presence um, in the manifestation of this culture, in the progression and the evolution of it. And now today, what is that like? There's not many people that can boast a bio like that, coming in on the ground floor of a culture and just helping define it with your work. Well, part of it has to do with how I got into the culture. I got into the culture sort of organically. It, you know, I turned around and bang, I was there. I started taking pictures of the graffiti and I started meeting the b-boys and slowly I met the DJs and the MCs and uh, I, I realized that this was a tribe and this was something of a cult and it absorbed me rather than me absorbing it and next thing I know 48 years had passed it's 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 hard to describe and I let other people describe it that can that are more articulate than me. <laughs> no, don't don't. I mean, you've spoken at the United Nations. Didn't you give Geraldo an earful once? <laughs> uh, twice, actually. Uh, the first time, uh, they had me on with the head of the skinheads, uh, which is like the ultra right neo Nazis, and uh, that's a famous episode, isn't it? Isn't that the one where he broke his nose? Uh, no, this was another one. That was the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, I was on actually with Al Sharpton, who now is a uh, Reverend Al, and uh, he, he he's also has, got a really big head. Now that he's lost all that weight, he looks like a bobblehead yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. it's well. <laughs> I was on that show with him and Sister Soldier, mm, wow. and for she has a reason, whole moment named after her. Right? Yeah, and the head of the skinhead started, you know, trying to rewrite Native history, and I put him. Uh, the audience was, say, 90%, 95% white. And when I started speaking, they had to go to commercial because the audience was going to go up there and annihilate the, the skinheads because they felt, uh. in talking with them later, they felt that this guy brought shame to white people because of his bigotry. And, well, it was three of them. And uh, the audience being predominantly white were offended, not by us, but by, you know, this person who was spouting all this anti-human, anti-God, anti-life, you know, so it was interesting. Uh, but I've also taken uh, Geraldo to task, although he's no longer relevant. Uh, I took him to task for several other things that he did, uh, namely for selling out to Fox News and, you know, that whole jargon out of uh, 
imbecility. And uh, he became, you know, he went over to the dark side, literally. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, what I find really interesting is how the, um, how race in hip hop, it, it, it's such a strange phenomenon because it's a black culture. It's clearly an expression and an art form and a culture um, reflecting black experiences. But the way that the culture is kind of constructed makes it seem really inviting for guys like me to come and hang out, if you know what I mean. Like, it, there, there is a peacefulness and a unity to, like, bridging each other's minds with, like, good beats and music and art. I, I, I don't think there's anything like it on the planet. I can't, I can't really compare it to anything. I compare different foods. But, you know, this, this kind of culture is really unique. And, and it, it kind of comes out of tragedy in a way, doesn't it? That's such a complicated uh, answer to give it a question to, add, to, to give it a in-depth answer would take more time than we have. Just know that the thing that you're judged by predominantly in hip hop is not the amount of melanin in your skin, but the amount of melanin in your spirit. You know, do you come correct? Do you come with an attitude that you want to sit at the table? rather than own the table? Do you want to sit at the table and break bread with people? Uh, do you bring a, a skill set? Uh, do you bring good energy? You know, look at the Beastie Boys. They're, they're the least uh, imaginable uh, group to get into hip hop, yet they're one of Chuck D's favorite bands. Now you figure that out. So that means well, that game with a spirit of energy and, you know, yo, we're here. And also, uh, again, uh, that that sort of built-in sense of unity that hip hop has, the Beastie Boys can be explained by explaining how um, the punk scene and the hip hop scene use the same venues, right? And how right. communities collided, and how you know, and, and how interestingly enough, Beastie Boys get get brought out of that. I I thought that Def Jam was basically my blueprint to hip hop when I was a kid, because we could only really access up here. Um, hip hop if we like mailed away for it or if the or if the if the record chain happened to have some something under the rap music category like i i first heard the first hip hop song i ever heard i don't know if i told you this before but was Lottie Dottie by Slick Rick it was the first time i ever heard hip yeah Every, anytime so which to me feels like i'm spoiled because the first time i ever hear hip hop i get to hear rapping next to a a really good beatbox and i was just like what the? F I thought I discovered plutonium, Ernie. You, you <laughs> want to really hear did. a funny story? What's that? Somebody has this on video. Me and oh. Slick Rick doing Lottie Dottie together. And uh, <laughs> I knew about one-tenth of the words. Of course, a lot of it is just beats. And uh, he was laughing at me, with me. It was just one of those moments. And uh, I got even with him before this even happened. Uh, I saw him once... Early in the morning, he had a bottle of champagne and he was drinking out of the bottle. And I, I drove my car into the park and rolled up on him and started beeping the horn. I said, put that down. You're under arrest. And he puts his hands up. He drops the bottle. <laughs> and then he sees me. And I won't tell you what he called me, but it wasn't my birth name. So he and I have had a lot of fun over the years. He's For those who don't me. know. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. He still owes me a couple of uh, insults you know we oh. he's just a beautiful cat and you you enjoy being around him because his energy is is you know just different man he's just got a good energy and i think he's Where one of the he? artists who made a career just on his good energy and his laughter it was so unique too like i mean was he british you know like yeah <laughs> yeah you know let, let me let me share something with the audience and with you uh for the past 10 years, I've gone around, as you know, in Canada and uh, the UK and uh, France and so on. And I do lectures on hip hop. And um, one of the things that I learned when I did my first book is that you have to go to a lot of book signings and a lot of bookstores, etc. Probably they don't have they don't exist anymore. But uh, when I get into a taxi, instead of sitting there looking at my phone, I talk with the cab driver. 
and yeah people find can, that that's a joke up here eh? like are you no, the annoying no, guy no. that talks to the cabbie and i'm like i am but i think the cabs actually like it most of the time well you know? yeah but if you get if you get cab drivers from africa or jamaica i, I got in a cab once and i was going to this book big book signing in in philadelphia and uh, the guy asked me what I did. I said, you know, I'm a photographer and an author, and I wrote uh, Who Shot You? And he said, really? I said, yeah, I shoot hundreds of people. And he was impressed. He said, I've shot people too. And, he, you know, it was an, a language thing. So I said, are you from Ethiopia? He said, no, I'm from Etria. Etria, I can't pronounce it. But I said, really? He said, yeah, I was kidnapped. They killed most of the people in my village and they kidnapped me and they made, made me a soldier. And I killed my first person at 13. And for the next 30 minutes, he was talking about it. And I said, why do you speak so freely? He said, I've never spoken about it before. And he was half crying, half. So we finally got to the book signing and I go inside and, you know, full house and I get up to speak and I, I couldn't talk. What the hell could I say that could compare yeah. to the one hour I just had? I felt Did like. Did you talk about that? No. No. I just, I, you know, I just answered questions. The host was asking yeah. questions then. But my spirit. So after that, every time I got into a taxi, I would listen to the cab driver. One of the things that relates so that, you know, I'm not going far afield uh, to Slick Rick was. The cab driver uh, said, what do you do? I said, I'm a hip-hop photographer. And he said, really? He said, I love Slick Rick. I said, me too. He said, do you know why? why where's all that gold? I said, no. He said, because if you're Jamaican and you're in England and you have to leave England, you can't take that with you. And you can't take but so much money with you. I, I'm sorry, you, you can't take, but I think $100, whatever that is in pounds. And so what the Jamaicans did was they buy a lot of gold over there. They put it around their neck. They come here and they sell it. <laughs> wow. So that's how the style started, because you can only bring X amount of dollars or pounds from the UK. So he, he got into this whole thing about Slick Rick and how that, that was reflective of the Jamaicans leaving the UK. I, I thought that was brilliant. And it was Slick, Slick Rick shared the, like, it was him and Big Daddy Kane that rocked the Gucci, right? Uh, no. Those are the two ones that popularized the Gucci. I was like, when, when, when I was young and I was discovering this hip-hop music, not discovering, but, you know, uh, learning about it, the gold chains made me feel exactly like the rappers wanted me to feel. Like I, I was one of those kids. I was like 12 or 11. And I thought these rope chains were like the greatest things ever. And I was always on the hunt for rope chains and they were always fake. And so I could never buy myself a rope chain. And then I, I found out no, how much they were. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, sure you don't. You have everyone. Fuck. Look at that. My God. Big Daddy Kane. And Eric B. Yeah, Eric being racket. But listen, is that do you have a favorite artist? Because if I, if I ask you that, I feel like what you're going to tell me is that yeah, but not for the music. Like you're going to tell me who your favorite artist is as a person. No, I have a favorite artist in different modalities. For example, Karras One because of his universal stance, his political stance. Chuck D, because of his politics. Mm. Yasin Bey, a.k.a. Most Deaf, because of where he took it outside of. Guru, because he added jazz to hip-hop. So, uh, yes, I have that. I like that answer. I don't like ranking artists. By the way, you're looking at my new book. Is that the cover or is that a picture inside? No, that's the cover. Okay, that's amazing. I, I think the title is is kind of You might want to say it. I can't quite see it. Stark, Starker, and Stark S. And the reason it has that name is because it's going to be the starkest book you ever saw with black as the predominant uh figure. And I I don't mean racially, but I like that. I like that. 
I like the use of that space being dark like that. That's always look at look at what you're yeah. Like other people that uh, that podcast, they always want to fill up the top and bottom of the screen with a color, and I'm like, no, no, I just want it to stay black. <laughs> Makes the more sense, dude. Like I'm, look, I'm looking for fifty thousand dollars for. An all right, all right. It's not it's not an infomercial, Ernie. Come on. Wait now. a second. Wait a second. <laughs> Most deaf. Ice tea. Ice tea. Okay. Ice so. tea was another one. Ice tea was another one that I grew up with. Um. LL Cool J, all that stuff. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Did um, I want to I want to put a picture up, and I want you to tell me about the story behind this picture. I'm going to do this a couple times, but this one specifically because Nas is 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 like one of my greatest uh, heroes as far as not just not just as a lyricist, but as a the way that he thinks. I like that he buys plantations in the South that used to be owned by slaves, and now he owns them. I like that shit. I, I like it that he does stuff like that with his money. But anyways. Tell me about this picture. Okay. We were shooting a video on 42nd Street, which is the most traversed place in New York City. And we're down by 10th or 11th Avenue, which is close to the water. And we were walking. It was me and him. We, we During the video, we stopped to get some food. And we were walking up the street. And there was about a half dozen of us. And I looked up, and I saw what looked to me like an eagle or an angel. And I asked him, of course, I knew he would say, you're crazy, get out, get out of here. I said, Nas, do you see that? He said, yes, that's an eagle or an angel. And I looked at him and I knelt down on one knee, looked up and got the shot. And to me, it's one of the most organic shots that you could ever get in this lifetime. And he's surrounded by New York City, but he's also surrounded by an angel. So... And I like the way that the blue above his head, that little space in the clouds, yeah, right above his head. Yeah, you know? yeah. And that that's that's why they call me the third eye of hip hop because I I have an instinctive feeling for images. It's it's not just getting a perfect image perfectly executed. No, it's about spirit. And if you look through my work, you'll see that a lot of my work reflects what I did before I became a photographer, which is I was a painter. Yeah, you've had quite a life. Um, we'll get to that in a second, because I also wanted to ask what music video that was. Hate Me Now. Not... Okay. Oh, no, I'm sorry. If I Ruled the World. Oh, okay, wow. So that's like 96, 97, something yeah, like that? 96, I think, yeah. uh, If I Ruled the World. Uh, Lauren Hill was there that day also. Yeah, dude, she... Uh, that that album brought me through my first year of college. <laughs> I was away from home for the first time. I was the only cat that 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 left my hometown to go to college at another college that was just a local college. <laughs> I didn't leave town for any good reason. Um, the uh, the UN speech. Tell tell us about that. I, like I'm going to approach this as as if um, none of my audience, because I have an audience that's mostly political and into media and stuff. This is going to be a little bit new for them. You're my first hip hop related interview, to be honest, um, since I started this podcast. Can you talk about the UN stuff and 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 what um, that meant for the culture? And after now that it's been so long, uh, did it mean as much as it did at the time? Like, there's a lot of politics that happened, you know, between now and then. Karras won 
whose name stands for Knowledge Reigns Supreme over nearly everyone, decided that there was too much violence, East Coast, West Coast. He was pre, 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 he had predicted where it would go. And he decided to get the United Nations, because the United Nations is a peacekeeping, supposedly, body, and to bring all the hip hoppers, East, West Coast, new, old school, whatever, and bring them together and let them have a chance to break bread and let them have a chance to feel one another and to, to cipher with one another and to build with one another. And I get a phone call, and the phone call is Karis One. And I said, Chris, what's up? What can I do for you? He says, I'm going to be doing an event at the United Nations, and I want the hip-hoppers there. I said, okay, how can I help? He said, I want you to be the keynote speaker. And it was one of the few times in my life where I wasn't able to speak. I just sat there, and I looked at the phone. I said, are you serious? He said, brother, I'm not calling you up because I'm, you know, joking. He said, I want you to be the keynote speaker. And it was me, Fable from Rocksteady Crew, and, you know, Everybody was there, Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, Grandmaster Kaz. I mean, I could go on the room. When I got up to speak, I was stunned because I look out at the room of all the people that I respected are all there. And I was like, oh, crap, I better be sharp or these cats are going to boo me. I mean, these are, you know. <laughs> so I got up and I spoke about something. And this was just a few months before 9-11, before the attack on the World Trade Center. I actually have a copy of the speech, but I said that America has gotten fat and lazy and vain. And we think that we're the ish. You know, we think that we're all that. And that anytime that happens in history, people have always been, this was in May. Mm -hmm. And the, the bombing took place in September. I said, anytime people have gotten too happy, too content, whether it's a Roman Empire or whatever, they usually get a big slap down. And I said, but as a native, we have to look at something else. We have to look at something that's affecting the global stability. And that's our ecology. You know, there are mountains that I used to go up as a kid that were full of snow. And now the entire mountain has no snow. And because there's no snow, when, when it gets warm, the snow doesn't melt and go down into the rivers and the rivers and, you know, and I, I went into that and I did it briefly because I, I assumed that the attention span of the audience was somewhere else, but I still have a copy of the speech. And I talked about those holy men on the planet who are warning us. The thinkers, the, the spiritual forces that are warning us. And of course, that was in May and September we got hit and then Right after that, we went to war against Iraq and Iran, uh, Afghanistan, and the yeah, rest what is a decade. Yeah, it's, what a it's decade. Been, yeah, yeah, and and this decade, in in the twenties, is getting even more bizarre. But we're starting to see the ramifications of not paying attention to Gaia, to Mother Earth, and not paying attention to what we need to be doing, which is this, rather than this and this, and you know all of that. We need to be doing this because right now the earth needs some sobriety. We need to really start thinking. We need to find ways, you know, to to lessen the burden on the planet and therefore on us. We do. Um, uh, but if we can't save the environment, we should at least enjoy some Rakim. <laughs> so <laughs> that was my segue. Yeah, that, tell me about this photo. That's a strange. That's a strange segue. Well, I didn't um, want to get too dark, right? For the, well, <laughs> I know it's important. It's important, but I want I I I want to know about this photo because for those who don't know, that is Rakim. He is like another goat. They're all goats, as far as I'm concerned. Of the people that we're featuring today, Nas, Rakim, um, Slick Rick, we have Chuck D, um, a, a good friend of yours as well. But I want to start with this photo because. Um, you and Rakim go way back as well, don't you? <sighs> Rakim is, and I'll say this unabashedly, he's on a level by himself. And his use of language and metaphors and even his pacing and his cadence and, you know, just his mindset 
Uh, and the other thing that's strange is if you look in his eyes when you're talking to him, you can see he's there, but he's also he's very cerebral and he's he's very linked into something deeper and it reflects in his music. So uh, we had gone up to Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, just about a year ago uh, to speak. Uh, he and I were speaking at a anti-gun rally because the murder rate had gotten obscene and it's getting worse. And we just went up there to reach the kids, touch the kids and make them understand, you know, life is short, man. Enjoy it. Don't be hurting each other and killing each other. I know that sounds corny and it's better to be a tough guy and, you know, carry a big gun. No. And that's, that's why I was with him. And it's, it's fascinating talking to him because talking to him or listening to him, part of what he's doing is communicating with you and part he's, he's communicating with his muse. You can sense that. There are just certain people that have an aura or have a sense or a sense of timing or a sense, not just presence, but maybe even absence. And yeah, it's almost like there's two speaks, set of eyeballs or something, right? Yeah, like there's, there's when the, he speaks, mind, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, when he speaks, his cadence is different. His cadence is very similar to his music. Yeah, he he was one of those guys that made me want to start writing, you know. Um, yeah. And I've been writing, I've been writing rhymes for like thirty five years, dude. Like I do it as a way to strengthen my brain and to release and purge all of like, you know, stresses and everything. And that's, that's just what I do. Like other people do yoga. I write rhymes and I've been doing it for so long that I just, I do it every day almost. Let me, and, let me tell you two Rakim stories real quick. Number one, yeah, please do. Cause I was just going to say before you do that, he was, when I wrote down his lyrics on a sheet of paper once, and I think it was microphone fiend or something. And I was like, holy shit his rhymes are so complex at the time they were like more complex than anybody at the time so go ahead with your rakim stories i was hired to do some stills on a music video of some off-brand rapper and i go down there and i'm taking pictures and someone says excuse me and i'm taking a shot i said give me a second they said excuse me and i turn around it's rakim you know and I don't know. Meeting Rakim is, you know, to a lot of people would be the ultimate, but saying excuse me and ignoring him and then turning around seeing Rakim. Anyway, he says, what are you up to? I said, I'm working. He says, oh, okay. I said, let me get some shots. So we get some shots. I, I would show you, but uh, he says, now me and him had a problem long ago. Hmm. He says, I owe you something. So I said, brother, you don't owe me nothing. He said, yeah. And I didn't know if it was good or bad. So <laughs> he, says, I want, he said, I want you to come with me. So we go to the back of the club, and there's this noise in there, and it's dark. And it's a little door. And he says, go ahead. So I open the door. He's behind me, and he closes the door. And I look, and there's like 50 people in there. And they all look like they just got out of jail you know, big muscles and sweaty yeah. and passing a bottle of Hennessy and smoking uh, exotic herbs. And you're like, was, you're like, please God, let them be straight. Well, no, that you're wasn't a little concerned. Problem. He goes, he starts to take off his jacket. Yeah. And then he takes off his shirt. And I was like, oh, what did I do to this guy? And I'm trying to think, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, everybody's looking at him and me. And it's just us and what's wrong, you know. And everything got real quiet. And I was like, it's me against the world. It's 50 of them, one of me. I got a camera. God knows what they got. And this guy comes up and he starts rubbing Rakim's arm. And I'm like, okay. And still I'm in like slow motion. Yeah. And Rakim sits down and this guy pulls out a knife. And I was like, okay, what a wonderful ride this has been. And then I realized the knife is to open something. And he pulls out some needles. And then I realized, it dawned on my stupid ass, that Rakim was about to get tattooed. 
And he said, Ernie, this is for you, brother. He says, you're going to get an exclusive. And I got a tattoo. I got a, a, a photo session of him getting R, the 18th letter on his arm. Oh, wow. Nice. So, you know, that was a strange moment. And uh, there, there's there's been other strange moments, but that one was like, okay. Uh, him getting tattooed, that was that was intense. That was yeah, intense. Um, and that was, uh, how many years ago was that? Jeez, 15, 20, I can't, yeah, I, angels have no sense of time. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Yeah, well, um, the the sense of time is 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 weird when you're living from the beginning of uh, what like this is like a calling. This is like like it's almost like we witnessed a calling for you because I can't even imagine you being another person. Like like it feels like whatever choices that you made when you were young, you made the right ones because you seem to have fallen right into the mold <clears throat> that life was supposed to give you. Here you go, I, post I think, photographer. <laughs> I, I think that's the first time in my life anyone ever said I made the right choices. I've always questioned that. Yeah. Here, here's something for you to marinate on. This is something I did in 1991. Actually, in 89 and 90, the Parker's okay. 91. And you did the cover, yeah? Yeah, and uh, that, that, that was the day where me and Chuck Terminator X and the S1Ws went into a pancake house. You got to imagine 25 was taking over a pancake house. Was it for the video or for, uh, like, what 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 was it for? Was it the shoot for the album cover or was it for it was video? It was the shoot for the album cover. Okay. But the pancakes were for our bellies. Yeah, well, I figured that. <laughs> and that or IHOP got a good plug. And, and then... Uh, after that, I had knee surgery and I was on crutches and three o'clock in the morning, the phone rings and I pick up the phone. Yeah. Ernie. I said, yeah, brother. Yeah. 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 Who's this? He said, it's Chuck D. I said, Chuck is three o'clock in the morning. Why are you calling? You okay? You need anything? He says, yeah, I need some. I said, well, why are you calling at three o'clock in the morning? He said, man, I'm in Europe. I have no idea what time it is. I've been in eight time zones. I don't know where the hell we are. I said, what do you need? He said, I need you to shoot an album cover for Terminator X. I said, brother, I ain't shooting nothing. I'm on crutches. I had knee surgery. He said, knee. He said, what about your hand? I said, what are you talking about? He said, is your hand working? Can you click a camera? I said, yeah. Why? He said, I'm sending S1Ws to your house. They'll hold the camera. You just, <laughs> and, and we did this in, in a parking lot. Out in the, oh, the valley of the GPs. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And uh, I was literally laying on the floor, and That's the so S1Ws were helping me kneel down and I mean, lay down on the floor so I could shoot. And that's how I got that angle. So, yeah, you have an interesting relationship with Public Enemy and Chuck D. I, um, I, you, you, you remember. Um, I'm just going to tell my audience this because I think they remember the the story that got me in trouble but they probably don't know this which is that I, I wrote a piece criticizing a black lives matter leader and um and then chuck d tweeted that um it was something like after 250 years of of white ownership has spawned this and and it was the white guy insulting the black lives matter leader in toronto um and I was like, I, 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 this guy was like my hero. The, the, I had pictures of Chuck D on my wall. I, I, you know, Do the Right Thing was a pivotal movie for me in that I, it made me awaken to politics and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right around about two years after that is when I saw Do the Right Thing and, and it literally changed my life. It's the best movie. It's, 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 it's my favorite movie of all time, I think. But anyways, um, so my childhood rapper hero calls me racist basically on Twitter. And I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? And I'm like, I'll call Uncle Ernie. 
he'll fix it. <laughs> so I called you. I was like, Ernie, you got to talk to Chuck D. <laughs> Chuck D thinks I'm a racist. And I don't know exactly what happened, but um, next day I know Chuck D's following me on Twitter and something, it seemed okay. Um, I don't know what you said to him, but um, thank you. I th you probably said something like, listen, just let the white boy off and just give him a follow or something. <laughs> Chuck D, Melly Mel, and Ice T. Cool you rap and polo. No, I talked to him about the totality of where you were coming from rather than the immediacy of where it looked like you were coming from. And he... Uh, nice. One, one of the things about Chuck that people tend to not understand is that he has a, 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 big, a big lens and a big idea of society, race, and consciousness. And he listened to me and he understood the context in which you wrote what you wrote. He also okay. understood the courage that it took to do that. He also understood that you understood the delicate uh, balcony that you were on there and how that could be so broadly, quickly uh, misinterpreted. So uh, he, he did not give you a pass. He gave you something more important he gave you understanding or overstanding as we say in hip-hop yeah and and look i, I was really thankful because i like my world fell apart like i wasn't even mad that people were threatening my life and they were i was getting <laughs> death threats i was like fuck the death threats chuck d doesn't like me <laughs> i gotta <laughs> fix that somehow um no so no i appreciated that um now i wanted to ask you about modern rappers and and if you have um been able to sort of like continue uh, shooting artists that are like popular today or within the last five years, like are you are you still sort of plugged in like that, or have you uh, have you decided that books is like the better avenue than going to the live shows and trying to get the shots and everything? Um, because of my physical condition, my knees are not what they were. Uh, imagine being in a huge stadium and you have to walk around at three times carrying two cameras and a camera bag. Uh, as with any photographer, it began to take its toll on me. My knees are not what they should be, so I can't do that. I uh, seldom shoot anymore. I do mostly lectures, uh, book tours, book signings, gallery shows. I've taken, I've elevated my art to a higher level, and I'm mixing in my new book. Even though you think it's a, uh, what do you call it, a uh, an advertisement, uh, I've. Managed, no, I do. <laughs> I've managed to cross the river between art and photography. And that's, I started out as a painter. So the idea of merging art and photography has always been a challenge to me. And I think that it's one that's long overdue. And I'm not just talking Ansela Adams or, you know, somebody up in the stratosphere. I'm talking about like, Gordon Parks, where you bring it down to the street and your work is recognized not only as valuable photography, but as art and having an art background and, and studying the, the masters of painting and spending two days with Salvador Dali and a whole bunch of things. My primary love is painting. And to me, the idea of mat merging and having a marriage between art and photography has always been my dream. And that's what my new book is doing. I am merging art and photography and I'm doing it uh, with a vengeance because I think that they've always been separated and they should not be because photography is an art. Yeah. And, and your photography. Um, and I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't, really want to get bogged down in any controversial stuff i actually want to look at it from like a complimentary angle even though the person who was supposed to pay you didn't pay you but wasn't the um the tribe called quest didn't they borrow one of your photos turn it into a painting and then put it on during saturday night live or something like that what was that about that, that's exactly what it was about but it was also rectified and apologized for and it came out better than uh, it, it could have. And that's always the case, eh? Here's, here's a case of art and photography. 
Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, no, they. Uh, we have since reconciled, and they had nothing to do with it. As in most things, dealing with uh, bands that that was outside of their wheelhouse. They had nothing to do with that. They they didn't even see the images until the they watched it on TV after their show on Saturday Night Live. And uh, it was like a specifically a painting of Fife Dog. It was just after he passed away, wasn't it? Yeah. Which yeah. Uh, I have to say something. There's a, a a lady who has been fr- who has become friends with me on Facebook, and she's Fife's mom. Oh wow! And she she is she's a beautiful lady, and uh, she calls herself Mama Fife. Fife, and just like I met Biggie's mom, and you know different uh, Tupac's mom. Uh, that that's a, a terrible thing because you could be on a train and suddenly hear your, your son's voice or, you know, you could be walking through the subway or down the street and see a painting or a photograph of him or the side of a bus or something. So it's, it's a difficult thing. When we lose people, we generally don't see much of them. But uh, with the widow or the mother of a fallen rapper, you know, you never know when it's just going to, Wow, there's there's my son, there's my you know, there's my daughter. So it's uh she's she's a beautiful lady and uh, she's very kind and uh she she loves when I post a picture of her son. Yeah. Um I mean Fife Dog was one of the he was like like the I don't know, like the kid in hip hop that you you felt like was still a kid. Do you know what I mean? I, I can't imagine that guy wanting to like throw down fisticuffs or pulling a gun or anything like tough guy like that. Like I, I can imagine him talking about basketball. Like, you know what? I, I watched the documentary that, um, that what's his face did the, uh, Mike, Rappaport. Michael. Yeah. Rapaport. Uh, that's right. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I don't know. I don't care about what happened behind the scenes with that, but I, I really enjoyed it. And, and Fife was just exactly what I pictured. <laughs> Like, yeah, I worked. You know, I worked on that film. I'm in it for a brief second. For some reason, he didn't interview me, but uh, I'm in it for a brief second. But I did all of still photography that's in it. And uh, if you do your homework, you'll find that uh, Fife did a album, a, a mini CD or a small album, what do they call it, an EP. And uh, he he talks. He called. Do you know what his Jamaican name is? No. Oh. Smutty ranks. <laughs> Is it just supposed to be the opposite of what you really are? <laughs> well, no, he was talking about girls and, you know, so on and so right. forth. He was doing like the, the dance hall guys, but he called himself Smutty Ranks. And uh, it's a great, if, if you could get your hands on it, I have it here somewhere, but if you could get your hands on Fife's album, it's, uh, it's, it's a jewel. And also the one where he disses uh, Q-Tip about uh, halter, halter top and bra, you know, he, he gets into it. And yeah. it's, it's cold-blooded, but it's hip-hop because hip-hop, that's that's just, you know, the progression. But look it up. I, I recommend to everybody, look up Fife's uh, album and look up his, I think it's called an EP. Or I, I don't know what they call it, but it has like four or five songs. And, it's a, and he, he refers to himself by his Jamaican name, Smutty Ranks. So <laughs> oh man, um, the uh, oh, I wanted to show this picture first um, because I, I see this picture when I'm not looking for you or for it. Like it just comes up in my feed sometimes, but it's this one. Oh yeah. yeah. Where was this? It looks like it was at Madison Square Garden for some reason, but I have no idea where this was. We were we were in the streets. And, what is uh, that in the background making that light? Oh, you know, in New York, in that part of New York, good Jesus, that's in Times Square. And oh, okay. every every square millimeter of uh, centimeter of, of that is some kind of obscene right. uh, advertisement for some capitalistic okay. garbage. Okay, I didn't realize it was Times Square because the background looks like it's like outside an yeah. arena. And, and the funny thing is he and I hung out so damn much and that's the only picture we ever took. 
As a matter of fact, he and I got in trouble uh, once uh, that night, actually. Uh, I was walking up. They were shooting uh, a video outdoors in Times Square, and uh, he he he's doing his part, and he looks at me, and he grabs the mic. He said, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. Is there any, ain't a damn thing changed? And Puffy starts blowing a fuse because he's paying so much to rent the, you know, and... He's cursing at me, you know, Puffy. He said, man, you come in, everything up. And what? I said, man, I'm just standing here. Go go somewhere. Go tell Biggie. I don't work for you. And and Biggie come over and said, what's the problem, man? Why are you always messing with Ernie? And and Puffy, <laughs> Puffy's trying to be a manager, trying to be a friend. We're all laughing. So uh, somewhere that's on video of him doing that. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. Is Ernie in the damn thing changed? But we only got one picture that I know of. And for some reason, we, you know, at that time, it was before selfies. So I wasn't always up in there. Yeah. That, that, you want to hear a really sad, beautiful story about that? Yeah. Uh, w- without even getting into it, I'm sitting in his uh, Jeep right after Tupac got killed. And he's playing Tupac's music and, and the music thing. And that jacket, I did a whole photo shoot and it was freezing cold at night. And about a year later, I get a knock on the door at my studio and I go to the door and it's this guy I seen around and he comes up to me. He said, Ernie, this is your photograph. And he had a copy of the photograph. I said, yeah, what? He said, uh, Biggie's mom is auctioning the jacket for charity for kids. And we wanted your permission to use the photograph. So I said, okay, sure. You know, why not? Man, it's for kids. I don't care. So what they did was they put my photograph of him inside the lining of the jacket. So that night, uh, one night, they they had the celebrity audition uh, auction. And I get a phone call that night from the guy. And he sounded vexed. I said, what's the matter? He says, we sold the jacket. We made a lot of money for the kids. I said, okay great. Uh, why are you calling? He said, I want to tell you that. I said, he said, but there's another part to it. I said, what's the other part? He said, Mary J. Blige was there and she was, uh, it was a raffle or something and she won and she took the jacket and she was smiling and she looked inside and saw Biggie and she started to cry. Oh, wow. Because she knew that was him messing with her. Yeah, that... The moms, the moms always get you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That the uh, the one thing that um, that took me back to like when when I met you at uh, I think it was Ryerson or U of T in Toronto. Ryerson. Um, were these people coming up to you, and they were like st- from the ages of like students to like fifty year olds, and they were. A- all kind of like just really impressed with how you're able to sort of like bridge a sort of sense of spiritualism with a sense of like responsibility and and how to be a good person. Um, when we met, because, uh, you know, I don't believe in God, right? So we met and it was like, we had a little bit of friction at the beginning because of something. And to be honest, I don't even remember what it was and I don't really want to right now, but like, but it was sort of fixed with like a humanity where we were able to like sit down and 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 just be civil and even if we disagreed that was fine and i find that like i'm i'm taking a piece of you not you personally but like a piece of sort of that mindset and trying to apply it to like my everyday life with my relationships as a as a standard you know as a way of like communicating where you don't have to be disagreeable just because you disagree and i think that a lot of people are drawn to you because of that well let me let me change your mindset if I may, I've been a practicing Buddhist since I was about 14. And one of the things that people don't realize is that we don't focus on a supreme being. We focus on the energy and the spirit around us. You don't have to believe in anything to know that each of us has a spirit. If you have a dog or a child, each has their own spirit. If you have 10 children, each has their own spirit. If you have Mm -hmm. 10 dogs or cats, each has their own spirit. 
that spirit is an energy. That's that's a force that the Christians call a divine force or whatever. It's a force. It's an energy. It's a consciousness. And you don't have to, you know, uh, bow down and supplicate and, and pray seven times a day in order to, to tap into that spirit. And uh, John Trudell uh, talks about that in one of his songs. He says, hey, uh, we heard great things about your people and your, your, your Christian people. He said, but the truth is we did very well and we had never even heard of you or your God. No disrespect, but, you know, you came and told us wondrous things, but you did not do wondrous things. So, you know, if you look at the history of religion, it's not really a nice one or a pretty one. It's very rare. And people instinctively, because they don't know, they identify Buddhism with religion. And yes, there are sects of Buddhism that, that may go that way. But what they do is they've created yoga and martial arts and all this by utilizing all those energies. And, and that's how the Tibetan monks are able to sit out in the snow in their underwear, you know, and melt the snow around them. That's not, you know, some religious thing. That's utilizing more of your spirit. Your spirit is an integral part of you. And even if you're a devout atheist, you have to understand you have a spirit. You have a spiritual force and energy. You have that uniqueness that makes you James, that makes you you. I have yeah, this I, Yeah, and you have, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off actually, but I, I'm, I'm, it's funny because lately I've been thinking about stuff like that and I've been, um, I, I'm never going to believe in an omnipotent being. However, I've been practicing in my own way, ritualistic ways of my, of how my process is when I write, for example, like sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll write 2000 words and I swear to God, I'm just sort of doing this. You swear to who? 2000 words. And I swear to God, yeah, it's, it's a figure of speech. It's not real. Um, anyways, <laughs> but, but I, I'll, I'll be, I'll be like the way Ray Charles played the piano in a way, because I'm looking away. I'm not looking at the screen. And to be honest, Ernie, sometimes I look back up and I barely have a memory of typing what I just typed. Like I can't, I could, I wouldn't be able to That's circle back. To you have a spirit. A spirit is not some thing that goes up in a church on a wall. A spirit is your energy. It's your energy field. It's your energy force. And you, I, I, I know I've done it. I've, you've, you've done it. You've gone into a room and somebody just like, you just look at them and you feel drawn to them. And then they yeah. speak and there's either a gentleness or something. That's a spirit. And and because of religion, we tend to think of the spirit as, you know, in, in integrated in all this uh, medieval uh, baboon. A spirit. Never, never. You, you don't have to believe in a spirit. A spirit is a spirit. It's an energy. It's nothing mystical or supernatural or your spirit is your energy. It's your, you know, it's I, I like, I, 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 I agree because um, I, I wouldn't call it a spirit personally. I don't know. I don't think, but it doesn't matter to me because I think we're talking about the same thing because I can't imagine um, consciousness without emotion, without love, without like a hunger for, justice and things like that we would just be these mathematical go about our business kind of creatures if we if we didn't have something else and if it's called this if you call it a spirit I, then then we're talking about the same thing i don't know what i call it i kind of like that i don't have a name for it well <laughs> because... they call, the the asians call it uh chi right or, uh some call it prana uh I'll, I'll give you an example you walk into a room uh i I've done this a thousand times. Uh, I'm a photographer and I always had beautiful women around me. You walk into a room, there's 500 beautiful women, 50 beautiful women, 10 beautiful women. And well, look at that hair. All... How could you not? You look like a fucking Italian uh, Lamborghini owning fashion designer because all the women probably love the shit out of you. Okay, go on. You, you walk into a room <laughs> and you see all these women. And for some reason, you're drawn to one. That's her energy. I, I I don't know her prana, her energy, her spirit, her chi, her 
magnificence, her, her aura. And you don't have to believe in anything in order to, to be drawn into that. And, you know, we, we get drunk on language and we need to get past language. As Native people, we understand these things and a lot of things don't even have a word. And, you know, yeah, I do have a big spirit. I, I've come to accept that at, at my age. And, and I do know that people are drawn to that, even the people that don't know any successes or books or any of that. And, you know, I accept that gently as a spirit. And, you know, there's nothing mystical or supernatural or religious about that. That's, that's who we are. And every creature on the earth has its own energy. Uh, you know, I don't want to get drunk on, on calling it a spirit or prana or chi or uh, you know, but I do know we have it. And I've seen in my in my voyages around the world and with martial artists and with great teachers that some have this incredible big spirit, this big energy, this big chi, this whatever, and are able to withstand things that would crush the normal person. And I never thought of it in terms of religion or anything. I just said, whoa, this is a person that, you know, it's. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell right away, right? Like I, I've been in those rooms. I, I've, in fact, uh, when I met Guru, he was like that for me. Um, he played that much music uh, in, in Toronto. And when he was done playing a set and the cameras were turned off just in the studio, Everyone rushed premiere. Toronto's, I guess, a lot of producers, and they this, you know, there's the greatest hip hop producer of all time, and so they all fucking rushed him, and they left Guru all by himself. And it was like I, I wasn't even paying attention. I was looking out the window, and I looked back, and as soon as I saw him, I was just like, I gotta talk to him. And it was just when Jazzmatazz came out, and he uh, he looked at me like I had been the only guy to give him um, a compliment on Jazzmatazz because he got a lot of fucking shit for for that album like he, a lot of people were really heavily criticized there he is yeah now let me uh, tell you let me tell you a story about he and i and the last time we were together uh we did a, a speech together or a talk together at yeah a rest in peace guru too we're talking about all the deceased ones today except for not yeah, really, well, yeah we we did a speech together uh i didn't know i was paid and invited to come do a speech and i didn't know he was there also and we did it together and someone filmed it. I don't have a copy of it. And there was something off. And I had like three or four people with me. He had two or three people. And as soon as we got off stage, he said, Uncle Ernie, I got to talk to you. So we shoot everybody aside and me and him just sat there. And he said, brother, I'm not doing well. I said, what's the matter? He said, I'm just not doing well. And uh, he looked at me and he held me and he cried and he said, I love you. I love you, brother Ernie. I love you, Uncle Ernie. And we agreed. We gave we Shane's numbers. We agreed to, to link up. Of course, before that happened, he was gone shortly thereafter. But uh, it, it was a strange moment. And I felt so much warmth and love from him. But I also felt fear. And I didn't know what to say. And uh, he was very young. He was very young. And yeah, uh, I mean, you, I, I'll you tell see... you a funny story to break the break the the, the solemnness. Yeah, good because we have about two minutes left. So go ahead. Okay, please. one night, mm. uh, Steve Madden uh, does. Who's the guy that makes the games? Is that Steve Madden or? No, I think that's the guy that just passed away, John Madden. John Madden. Anyway, he had a video game, some sneakers, some, some, some. So I get a phone call, and I, I don't know nothing about video games. And they said, we want to hire you. I said, no, I'm not working. He said, oh, we'll pay you whatever you want. I said, no, you won't. He said, look, I said, I'm not working this weekend. He said, I'll pay you whatever you want. I gave him a stupid number. He said, okay. So I go there. To There's a club, and there's a long line, like three blocks long of people. So it's raining. And we get up, I get up to the door and I, I get up to the door and, you know, normally 
normally when I get up to the door, the, the security, oh, Brother Ernie, and they, they bring me in. So me and Guru, we see this line, and we got a, he got a bucket of chicken, and we're eating chicken. We walk up to the guy at the door, and we said, you know, we're working here tonight. Uh, Guru's doing a little talk, or, you know. And these are two guys, like seven feet tall from Russia, two or three guys with thick Russian accent. We don't know you. I said, I'm Ernie, man. I'm the fool. We don't care. Go. Line. And the guru's laughing. And he says, too bad, B. So he starts to walk in and go, where are you going? He said, he told him, I don't care. And we're standing there in the rain. And people are laughing at us because we just walked to the front of the line like we always do. And yeah. they were laughing at us. And we're all the way at the back of the line. Finally, one of the publicists comes out and sees us soaking wet in the line eating chicken. And I got picked of him eating chicken in the rain. And uh, that was a funny night. But usually we go to clubs, man. All the security knows us. Yeah. These are two Russians. Up. We don't care. Go. <laughs> you know? So It's funny that, because I. I, I story I, about. Uh, that's a whole cult. That's a whole culture, though, the, the whole lineup thing, because I was in the rave scene in Toronto and I was hooked up. It wasn't me. I wasn't the big, big name or whatever. But my roommates and my business partners were like big in, in, in the scene. And so I never had to wait in line anywhere. And it's a real cultural difference between waiting in line and not waiting in line. And I don't think I ever want to go back <laughs> to waiting in line. Well, so now I just don't go. For like 20 minutes in the rain. We were eating chicken and laughing. I was taking pictures of him, That's and we got a picture of us eating chicken. So, you know, uh, yeah, we were yeah, I know, yeah. Uh, he's he's another one. Um, he was my favorite growing up um, because I I just felt like he painted a picture, and because Premiere was so good. But um, you know, I'm I'm realizing that one hour is probably not enough with you. So uh, let's do this again soon, man. This is Ernie Panicoli. Or as I like to say, because I'm Italian, Ernie Paniccioli, which is a little bit better, right? Not really, but... Uh, <laughs> Come on, man. Come on, man. Give me something here. Okay. For, um, Toronto, for Toronto, I miss you guys, and I spent a lot of time up there, and I have mad love for you, and uh, um, I intend to come back, but, you know, no one can read the future. I just am grateful to you, uh, James, for having me on and uh if you make talk, it up here you're gonna stay here okay you're gonna I'll put, I'll put you up here for as long as you want to stay that's totally okay, fine wonderful uh james uh you know there's a lot of people you could have had on your show and and one thing that we just proved is that we could spend two hours and it seems like two minutes so that means we're i know and and i mean like and you're totally going to be fine with the fact that I'm going to try to shake you by the ankle and see if any rappers fall out for my next podcast guest. So this is going to be great. <laughs> okay, buddy. Ernie Pinnacoli, thanks, brother. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, all of that. And I answer everybody's letters and emails and obscenities and kindnesses. And, you know, Sorry about the obscenities. I'm trying to, no, I'm trying to no, stop that's, that. That's fine. It goes with the territory. All right, brother. brother. I will you. talk. And, uh, thank you, man. Peace. Thank you. Thank Bless. you. Ernie Panicoli. Um, yeah, like I said, I could go on uh, for, for hours and hours with that guy. Um, he's a friend. Uh, he, he's the biographer and the official photographer of hip hop. And I was happy to have him. Um, so thank you very much. I'll be on the Dean Blundell show in about an hour. And tomorrow I have former NHLer Sean Avery. Um, and I like him because he was a guy that just didn't take shit from anybody. And I like that shit. So uh, thanks, everybody. We'll talk soon. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. The podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares. It's for the open-minded, the pleasure seeker. 
It's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.